Good morning. Uh, this morning I have the uh, great pleasure of filling in for Kent. And uh, as always, when I uh, am able to preach, we'll be in the book of Philippians in chapter 1, starting verse 19. Before we dive in, I just would like to say I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. I hope it was a sweet time of fellowship with family and friends. And I hope you had an opportunity to share that Christ with those who may not be believers in your family and friends. It's a magnificent time and opportunity to do that that we don't often have. So I hope that that was uh, beneficial and good. Let me pray this morning, and then I'll uh, begin reading this passage. Lord God, we thank you that we can come before you this morning. We thank you that you have given us a season in which we can take a step back and look to your magnificent birth on earth as a babe. I pray, Lord, that our focus would remain on you throughout that season and throughout the year. I pray that you would bless our time here together, that the words that I speak would be for your glory alone. Thank you for this church. I pray that you will be with those who are out, who are ill, and who are traveling, and that you will uh, just be with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start reading this morning in verse 12. Uh, last time we were in Philippians, we covered uh, verses 12 through 18. So for the sake of context, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26, and then a, a brief review to get us caught up since uh, I believe it was August last time we went through that passage together. So, Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
Last time we were in uh, Philippians chapter 1, the message was titled Perspective on Chains. And we found Paul uh, imprisoned, physically restrained by guards via chains 24-7. And despite his chains and his imprisonment and his sufferings and the uncomfortable nature of being chained to a guard, he was yet continuing to minister faithfully. We looked at the fact that his suffering was something that made the other brethren much more bold to proclaim the gospel because they saw that the gospel was spreading throughout the entire imperial guard despite the circumstances. We saw how the chains were not merely restraining Paul, but they were also giving him a ministry opportunity that he accepted with great joy. The message in a, in a nutshell from this last section of Philippians was this, uh, that we looked at. In all of our circumstances, are we held down by them or are we using them in God's strength and for his purpose and for his glory and for his kingdom because we hold Christ to be more precious than our own temporary sufferings? I hope that rings a bell or two from August and brings us up to date uh, on this passage. We see a lot of the same themes here, starting uh, in verse 19. Uh, we see Paul dive to a, a bit of a deeper level on some of them. It's the same themes, uh, joy and suffering is still there throughout this entire book of self-sacrifice and of keeping Christ in his proper place in our lives, not placing our own temporary circumstances above the work and the will of God. And we note, look at uh, 18b here at the end. Uh, your Bible probably uh, starts this section with 18b. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is continually reconfirming and reaffirming his joy in his circumstances to the Philippian church over and over and over again. In verse 19, continuing, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The, so the reason for Paul's joy in all circumstances is because of his complete confidence and faith in Christ. Not that he would be delivered on earth, not that his suffering would abate, but that Christ will be honored in his body. Look at the terms used here that show complete confidence in the work of Christ in his life. He says this, I know. He says, this will turn out. He says, my eager expectation. He says, Christ will be honored. These terms and these phrases are expressing his faith in statements of fact. There is no doubt in these words. Paul's perspective is not, maybe this will turn out, or Christ might be honored right? Or any other similar statement that would put doubt in our minds. His faith was in the fact that Christ would 
work out his will through Paul. And as a servant of Christ, that brought great joy into Paul's life. Joy is a full, deep, abiding, and spiritual expression of our contentment and our delight in Christ. It has an element of emotion, but it is not all emotion. It's tied into our love and faith in God and is a fruit of the Spirit. And faith drives joy. If there is no faith in the promises of God, there's no joy. Joy cannot exist outside of faith in Christ. And often, a failure of joy was first a failure of faith. So we see here the connection in this passage between Paul's faith and confidence in the Lord and how that drives his joy in all circumstances. He is confident. He has eager expectations. He knows that Christ will be honored. And because he is seeking the Lord's will in his life in all circumstances and above all else, he has true joy. The confidence and this joy is summed up in the central thought of this passage. And what you could probably guess is the focal point of this sermon, which is verse 21, where it says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's read verses uh, 21 through 26 again. I love to read these over and over to keep them in the forefront as we go through this message this morning. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This powerful and, and central statement of this passage, to live as Christ and to die as gain, reflects much of what the Christian life is about. It's a commonly known statement in Christian circles. And yet, like all of Scripture, there's much to be gleaned from it. To live as Christ and to die as gain. When we initially read this sentence, one thing I think that we do have to be careful about is that we don't just focus on to die as gain. That's the easy half of this statement. It's a comforting thought that death, the thing that terrifies nearly every human on earth, is actually gain. Entering heaven will be glorious. We know this to be true. Resting in our Savior's arms at the end of our lives is a comforting thought, and it should be. But to live as Christ is at least equally worthy of our focus this morning. Because at this moment in time, that's where we are. Right? We've not yet entered the physical presence of Christ, and so to live as Christ is what we're currently experiencing. We're not called to sit back and wait for heaven. 
This is an action statement. So what does it mean? What does it mean to live as Christ? He says to live is Christ. To live as Christ completely eradicates the idea that Christ should be a mere part or a mere subsection of life. The bumper sticker that says, try Jesus, is the opposite of Paul saying, to live is Christ. This means that the full purpose of life is Christ. Not that Christ is a part of our lives, because if we try to make Christ a mere part of our lives, it means that we are superior to Christ and that we're doing him a favor by allowing him to occupy a corner somewhere. It means that our lives are wrapped up in him to the extent that we can say life is Christ and there is nothing else. That everything else we do flows from him and for him. It means he's the driving force behind life. He's the perfect example of life, which we aspire to and desire to imitate. He's the only reason we have life in the first place. And he's the full purpose of the life that we have. It means that we throw away everything in our lives that we cannot reconcile to a position of also being in Christ. If we can't reconcile a certain idea that we have or a preference or a belief with what Christ has said in his word, then we cast it out because it has no part of a life in Christ. We align ourselves to him, not the other way around. And because Christ is the highest possible being, because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, for us to live a life in Christ is the highest possible human life. It's what we were made for. And as we've seen the last several messages in Philippians, it's the only way to find true, actual joy in life. Because we were made in his image. We are designed to fellowship with him. As surely as a, a fish out of water cannot find any joy or purpose or fulfillment, neither can we outside of Christ. Living your life for anything that's not Christ is a wasted life. Living your life for your children is a wasted life. Living your life for your spouse is a wasted life. Living your life for political pursuits or uh, worldly hedonism or a career or a hobby or anything else short of Christ is wasting that life. Because there are lives spent placing things that are much lower than Christ, much higher than him. Life for, is Christ for the believer, and our desire to raise our children properly, to love our spouses as we should, flows from the Christ who gave us those blessings and from a desire to glorify him properly. So we don't 
raise our children by our own preferences and by our own humanly understanding. We go to the word of God and say, what does this say I should do? And we allow it to overrule our own selves. It means that we don't relate to our spouses how we see fit. It means that we study the relationship of Christ to the church and we design our marriages around that. We can't honor God in our work and in our relationships unless we first honor God as supreme. We have to understand that we, in and of ourselves, have nothing and are nothing and can do nothing good except being in Christ. The goal is that we keep Christ in his proper place above all else, and then everything else we do flows downward from him, that we are in our rightful place of submission and of loving fellowship with him, and our faith and subsequent joy flows from that. And as we've seen so many times in the scriptures, the joy that flows from this appropriate hierarchy makes us much less concerned with the afflictions of the world. Because instead of focusing downward, we are focusing instead upward on our ongoing relationship with our Savior that we will meet face to face when death becomes gain. It means we can say with full dedication, I delight to do your will, O God, as we see in Psalms 48. Or like in Psalms 37.5, it says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him. And we say yes. We desire that because he is worthy of our full commitment. It means that everything we do from raising kids to working to engaging in hobbies in total and complete submission to Christ for Christ and by and by that we obtain the greatest joy possible and blessings from above. Paul went through a lot and yet his joy was full because for me to live is Christ. All throughout this book we see his faith and his joy. Philippians 2, 7 says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Philippians 3, 1 says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Philippians 4, 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And we could spend an entire 35 minutes or so just going through statements in the New Testament that talk about Paul's joy over and over again. But I'll move on because that's five or six right there. This is, a, this is a bulletproof joy, right? It's a bulletproof joy because to live is Christ, because Christ is supreme above the world. And when we take our refuge in that supreme being, when we live our lives in Christ because he has called us to, he gives us far more than we can earn or imagine not temp always temporary happiness, but real lasting joy. Right after the 
I am the vine, you are the branches, passage in John 15 that we've looked at before. Jesus says this in John 15, 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Full joy in Christ comes from being in Christ as connected to him as a branch is to a vine. A branch that attempts to be disconnected from the vine does not survive. And neither does our joy when we are not in Christ. And when Christ tells us something that Paul echoed often, that my joy may be in you, what is he referencing here? What kind of joy is he referencing here? Well, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 has this to say, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Christ showed us how, gave us an example of how to endure harsh and terrible things for the joy that was set before him. That is the ultimate joy, the fullness of joy that he knew was ahead of him for living the perfect life he lived and, and for him re-entering heaven, having conquered sin. And yet, this is the kind of joy, fullness of joy, that we have available to us through him. In the harshest of conditions, in the most depressing of times, in the depths of despair even, Christ grants us faith which drives our joy and gives us examples to help us along in his word over and over again. This is the joy that got Paul through beating and stoning and that Christ pushed through the cross to obtain. And it's made available to us. R.C. Sproul says this about joy. Fullness of joy comes from Christ. It is first his joy that he gives to us. And as we are plugged into him, this joy that comes from him grows and increases and becomes full. There is a fullness that awaits us as the fruit of the Spirit is nurtured by the true vine. So you see, we, we don't pursue joy as if it were the end goal. We don't pursue the gifts themselves, right? We pursue Christ, and from Christ flows this fullness of joy. You know, the, the evidence that is generated in a person who says to live as Christ is often what reassures us that death will actually be gain down the line. This is what comforts our loved ones when we pass into heaven, that our lives show great evidence 
that for us to live was Christ. That Christ had done a work. And that a life spent for Christ gave great evidence of that. The legacy that we leave behind of a life spent in Christ can continue to bring others to Christ years and decades later. So the evidence that death is gain is that first life is Christ. If, if my life is lived in my own pursuits, then where is the evidence that death is actually any gain at all? Right? Where's the evidence that the world or my friends or my family can see? Where is my witness to the unbelieving world if my life is not first lived in Christ? See, you can't have either of these statements without the other. To live as Christ means that then to die is gain. We can't have the gain of entering the presence of Christ in heaven if we first refuse Christ in our earthly lives. There are many deceivers out there. There are many false gospels. And there are many people, just individuals, who would never say openly, but believe in their hearts, as we all do sometimes, and act as if they can live their lives partially for Christ in an uncommitted fashion and yet still receive the gain of heaven. This is how you enter judgment, saying, Lord, Lord, did I not do great things for you? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So we have to be so careful to frequently study our own motivations and our own reasons for doing, our, for doing what we do to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, now, hear me on this. We don't earn our way into heaven by anything we do here on earth, okay? But what we do and why we do it shows the evidence that Christ himself has put inside of us, that there has been a change made, right? So let me make this clear. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I am not preaching a works-based gospel. I am not saying that your good works on earth allow you to enter heaven and receive the final gain. So let me say this again. We don't earn our way into heaven by anything we do on earth. But what we do and why we do it shows the evidence of what's inside, what the state of our souls are, actually are, right? Whether or not the salvation we claim is real, and whether or not the things we do on earth have any eternal value whatsoever. The gain that we receive in heaven is the complete fullness of our joy and the com complete unification with Christ because Christ has deemed it to be so. And because he has deemed it to be so, we are more than willing to accept his blessings and to, with grateful and joyful hearts, live our lives out in Christ. We have faith in that today. We have faith in what comes today. 
but it will soon be sight to all of us. So because of this, um, because of the power of God giving Paul not only salvation, but sanctification and the ability to live a life in Christ and that Paul had been given the guarantee of gain in death through that, he was now free, as we see in our passage that I'm about to jump back to, he was free to live his life in a way that was so full of fruitful labor and gave so much glory to Christ that it just continued to pour out of him, that he could not help himself but to witness to the guards in chains, but to write these books so concerned for the Philippians and so little concern for his own self. He could, he could continue to do that because of the work of Christ in his life that he so eagerly embraced. Let's go back to the passage. Verse 22 through 26. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. There are, there are two sides here that we see in the final section of this passage. The first side for Paul is to remain in the flesh, right? To continue to undergo prison, to remain in hardship, to remain in the sin of the world, to remain with the thorn in his flesh. To continue in the suffering that simply comes with life here. And yet, continue in the fruitful God-sent labor in the strength God provides. And yet the second is what Paul desired more, and that was to depart and be with Christ. It's far better, right? To receive the fullness of blessing that God had has, and still has stored up for his saints to enter into the presence of God for all of eternity and forever leave the suffering and the cares and the sin of the world behind. Far better, right? And yet, look at what Paul says. He says this, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. On your account. Continuing, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he's expressing his willingness to stay in the difficulties of the world for the sake of everybody else. He's not staying for himself. His desire to remain is for them and for the people of God. Why? Because he holds Christ to be supreme. He's he was willing and joyful writing these words in staying in 
what we today would probably consider total physical misery for the sake of Christ and other believers. So a life lived in Christ is a life that is first dedicated to the glory of Christ and then also the benefit of others. It is not tied up in self. It is not first concerned with itself. Even in anguish at times, he's ready to undergo as much more as the Lord would appoint for him so that those in the church would have more, uh, verse 25, progress and joy in the faith. And that they would also, verse 26, have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Listen, how much hardship are you willing to undergo for the people of God? These people sitting around you today, even the ones you don't really know, are still children of God. Even the ones you don't really like, if such are here, right? How much difficulty are we willing to go through now, today, for the people of God? Because God has assigned their value, not you, not me. So let's be, let's be totally honest, right? It's easy to say, I would die for the people of God. I would be a martyr if it came to that. That's really easy to say. But being realistic, you know, being a martyr in the year of our Lord, 2021, in the United States of America, is extraordinarily unlikely. Right? My guess would be no one got in their cars this morning to drive up here thinking, I might die for Christ for going to that church. Right? It's not in our mind. It's extraordinarily unlikely at this time. Now, we don't know what the future holds. The study of history will say things can turn on a dime and often do. But for now, that's very unlikely. But outside of statements of devotion and the willingness to suffer for others on a grand scale, such as death, we're called to live in Christ and for Christ now when it involves doing things you don't want to do for people you may not particularly know, big or small things. When it involves putting the people of God above self, even when it adds difficulty or inconvenience or even when it creates suffering in your life. Would you allow your relaxing Sunday afternoon plans to be disrupted? Would you give of your time and of your money and of your effort when you least expected it? Would you allow your plans to be changed when you least want them to be? Would you seek out opportunities to glorify Christ and to bless his people? Again, verse 25, for their progress and joy in the faith. And sometimes it's the, the smallest little selfish things that we can hold on to the strongest. Right? Maybe sometimes we can hold on to Friday pizza and movie night a little too tightly, right? When the Lord's calling us to something else for someone else. 
later in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 3, Paul said, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Living in Christ is the path to joy and the path to gain later in death. If Christ has so blessed you by electing your soul into salvation, we then have the joy and the privilege of giving of ourselves for him and for his people here on this earth. We have the privilege of being able to exchange temporary, earthly, useless things for eternal glory in heaven and true actual joy on this earth while we're here. And there is such great gain in this life. Matthew 6, 20, I'm sure we all know this passage. It says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? And we do that by living in Christ here in his power, by his might, and by looking forward to the gain that is after death. Store up those gains, right? Paul had nothing on this earth. And I don't know if we get bigger mansions in heaven or how all that works, but he's probably got a big one right now because he spent his entire life for Christ. And when we gather those crowns, when we gather those crowns of righteousness, when we get to heaven, we have examples in Revelation that all we want to do is throw them at the feet of Christ. Because it is all through and from Christ. So in the end, one of the most wonderful truths in this passage is that to live as Christ, to die as gain, puts Christ's elect in a no-lose situation. St. Augustine said this, Father, command what you will and grant what you command. An appropriate prayer. This is the place to be. Life in Christ, whether or not there is temporary hardship here, whether or not you have a thorn in your flesh, and if you don't now, you probably will later. <laughs> Life in Christ, we get his joy and his peace, the ability to see with new eyes, to comprehend with a new perspective, to act with a new purpose that is so much greater than the one we had before. And in the end, death is more gain than our minds can comprehend at this point in time. This is the way that is the true way, the best way, the most fulfilling way, the most joyous way to live a life. To live is Christ and then to die is gain. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and that it is powerful. We thank you that you have blessed us with your complete word. Lord, we thank you for the examples we have in Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you save us, that you select us, that it is all through you and because of you that we can live life in you. That everyone in this room would reject you and be damned to hell except for your work in our lives. I pray that our passion would be appropriate for the gift that you have given.
that we would seek your kingdom first, that you would flood us with faith and the subsequent joy that comes with it. I pray that we would go out into the world, that people would know us by our love for each other, that they would know us for our self-sacrificial ways, that they would know us because we love you, that we would be known by our joy in a world that has virtually none of it. I pray that we would not exchange temporary earthly pleasures that bring momentary happiness for eternal joy. We thank you for your blessings. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.